0: The following program is a podcast1.com production.
1: I'm Brett Easton Ellis, and you're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, the actor Jason Schwartzman. Uh, Warning, we believe and we don't believe in the idea of spoilers on the podcast. We don't care. I'm going to be talking about a moment that happens in the climax of the movie, The Overnight, starring Jason Schwartzman. And if you are childish enough to think this is going to ruin the movie for you, which it is not, then maybe you should skip to minute four of the podcast. In Patrick Bryce's new movie, The Overnight, which had its premiere at Sundance earlier this year and is playing around the U.S. and the U.K. right now, Adam Scott and Taylor Schilling play Alex and Emily, a young couple with a small child who have just moved to L.A. from Seattle. And on one of their first mornings in the city, they take little RJ to a nearby park where they run into Kurt, played by Jason Schwartzman, who is with his own young child Max, and Kurt approaches the couple. And after some flattering small talk, invites Alex and Emily to his gated mansion in Beechwood Canyon, where his French wife Charlotte, played by Judith Godrich, will make them dinner, and the two boys can play. The couple accepts the invitation, and later that evening arrive at the gated mansion with their boy in tow. And everything seems effortlessly delightful at first. After dinner, Schwartzman wants to keep the evening streaming along, and so he puts the two boys to bed upstairs, and then the odd snatches of sexual tension that have been hovering here and there starts overtaking the evening, and it becomes revealed that Schwartzman and Godrich have not only chosen Scott and Schilling as new friends, but as new sex partners as well. And the main tension that starts rising throughout the movie, and which makes it as funny as it is, is that we're not quite sure who wants who. Does Charlotte want Emily? Does Kurt want Emily? Does Emily want Kurt? Does Alex want Charlotte? Or does Kurt want Alex? And as the movie keeps heading toward what seems like a Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice orgy there's some comic full frontal male nudity out by the pool an excursion to a massage parlor and a lot of pot and alcohol and the action finally culminates in a bedroom with the four leads coming to grips with their various misunderstandings and the indirect seductions and everyone's motivation is revealed and there's a group hug that lingers and leads to well the movie goes there. With the Jason Schwartzman character and the Adam Scott character making out while Scott starts stroking Jason's very large dick. Actually an oversized prosthetic that we have seen quite a bit of in the pool sequence along with the undersized prosthetic that Adam Scott is wearing. This moment between the two men has been hinted at all along, we now realize throughout the movie. The Adam Scott character is heterosexual but something has opened up during this one night and it doesn't mean that he'll be hooking up with any other men. It's just that an opportunity has presented itself And the Schwartzman character, who is more sexually open to any possibilities, verging on bi, has made a strong case as to why this should happen. This moment isn't funny; it isn't played for laughs. It's sincere. As the two men fall on the bed and their wives lay next to them, now this scene in this moment we're in had to happen in movies at this point. Anything less would have been evasive, a cop-out. And though I didn't expect it to happen, once it does, it's a jolt. Because at this point, the overnight exposes every other bromance, male-bonding comedy as a kind of phony, inauthentic movie lie. Not because every straight guy in real life is going to bone his best pal, but within the confines of a genre, maybe in the modern era, starting with Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid and The Sting, In the fantasy world of movies, where everything ultimately is a metaphor, it often makes more sense if the dudes stopped acting cute with each other and just admit what's really going on between the lines in the script. This sex scene in The Overnight is ultimately interrupted hilariously, and I'm not going to reveal what happens next. And I'm not saying that Overnight is a great movie or anything, but this moment is still one of 2015's bravest and most revelatory in American movies. Yes, it has been that kind of year where there is not a lot to get excited about, except for a Pixar movie and a new Amy Schumer comedy, and that's about it. And it opens the gate for young actors to explore just about anything sexual after this. Now, the movie has only made about a million bucks so far theatrically, but it only cost $200,000 and was shot quickly over a period of two weeks. And in this DIY moment where there are so many boring, well-intentioned, earnest indies made for this much money, the Overnight, by comparison to most indies, has a savvy and somewhat commercial setup and plot. And it could have been a skit on SNL or it could have been a raunchy, R-rated studio comedy starring Seth Rogen or Jason Bateman and Will Ferrell or Zach Galifianakis, probably without the dude-on-dude action. And yet the Overnight's heart is ultimately conservative, much like Judd Apatow and Amy Schumer's Trainwreck ends up being still a very funny, large-scale comedy, but demands that youthful things be set aside so the responsible adult can now soberly get married and take care of the family. So The Overnight and Trainwreck are not transgressive necessarily, but why I'm talking about The Overnight is that it's just the movie that finally says yeah, this can happen. No big deal. We can go there and it's okay. This can be part of the comedic conversation and there's no reason anymore to be afraid of this. Now, I'm talking about this movie because Jason Schwartzman is on the podcast and he's been around for almost two decades in American movies and television and the last few years he starred in the HBO series Bored to Death, created by Jonathan Ames and he has created slash developed a new series with his cousin Roman Coppola and Alex Timbers called Mozart in the Jungle, whose first season can be seen on Amazon and it stars uh, Gail Garcia Burnell, Malcolm McDowell, Bernadette Peters, and Saffron Burroughs, and it's based on Blair Tindall's memoir of her professional music career in New York. She's an oboist who played the New York Philharmonic in various Broadway shows, and it's really about the comic cutthroat situations she has found herself in. The show is a comedy, and it continues the mass exodus of talent leaving the movies, or a certain kind of movie that is no longer made. Let's make that clear. And entering into the artistic freedom cable TV offers, and not network TV, let's make that also very clear. But cable and streaming services like Amazon – The Overnight looks like a $200,000 movie, and it tries to look as good as possible, and if it looked any slicker or more expensive, it would probably fall apart. It needs the visual raggedness. And this is becoming more and more true for movies now, because there is no money to make movies anymore on a certain scale. The stories being told are being told in a way that can be done for, I don't know, a million dollars or less, and this is something that has changed the face of American independent cinema. A certain movie can no longer be made because there are not the resources to make that kind of movie, so you keep it small with very few characters and minimum and one or two settings and yes you lose a certain kind of movie magic because of this. But we may be in a transitional period and something like Sean Baker's Tangerine, his recent transgender comedy drama set in L.A. on Christmas Eve and which was made for $100,000 on three iPhones and got a theatrical release, looks pretty damn good. And it seems odd that Mozart in the Jungle, a TV series on Amazon, looks like what movies usually used to look like, at least high-end independent films, and isn't it interesting how we got to this point? So, Jason, a big conversation on the podcast has been repudiating the idea that there is a golden age of television and that if there was one it was brief maybe starting with the sopranos and the wire and ending with mad men the argument is that movies depend on visual mood and atmosphere and because of this they need a certain budget to achieve this and that the movie is a director's medium it's his vision it's not the writer's And that means a certain idiosyncratic visual style with the camera acting as a character is part of the power of good movies. And that TV is not there because it's a writer's medium, not a director's medium, a writer's medium. And the camera doesn't tell the story. The information tells the story. There's not enough money in most TV shows to have a distinct visual look because the information needs to be dispensed. And since the information for the nine or 10 episodes has already been locked down before the shooting commences, you are there to shoot the characters dispensing this information and filming these things happening. Movies can change in editing. Storylines can be moved around or they can be dropped. Whole subplots can be jettisoned in post, but not in TV. So something like Let's say 50 Shades of Grey, which is two hours that cost $40 million to produce, simply looks different than what's on TV, because there are no episodes of a TV show that cost $20 million to make. And people are very resistant to let go of this golden age of TV idea, though even some of its most prominent practitioners who have been on this podcast, including Matthew Weiner and Alan Ball, have said that this notion is ridiculous and a media-made idea. But the debate now is that since many movies are costing less and less to make, they are starting to have a kind of visual plainness to them. Not all by any means, and yes, we are in a transitional period, but it hasn't changed fully yet. I mean, is there anything on TV that looks like a Wes Anderson movie, or a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, or an Inaratu movie, or a Michael Mann movie, or a David Cronenberg movie? Though watching things as disparate as the recently canceled Hannibal or season two of True Detective or even something like Mozart in the Jungle, the look of movies and TV are starting to fuse a little. First of all, I want to know if you notice this as someone who acts in TV and acts in movies and who watches TV and who watches film, the difference in the way they're made and how they look. And I guess the other question is, does anyone care now? I mean, that content is simply becoming content movies tv youtube clips what's the difference anymore and that these borders are being erased by the easy availability of all content and that's why everything is going to unfortunately ultimately kind of look the same and is that a loss do you have any feelings about any of this
2: yeah, everything you're saying hits at a certain level because right now we're in the process of coming up with the second season of our show. Of and and Ray. many of the things you're saying, that's just part of part of the conversation, in terms of figuring out how you know, how much has to be determined in an outline and and then writing to that and, and first of all, like acting in a show and a movie. Like I was just in this wet whitehead American Summer mm-hmm. prequel. Right. And it was the most precise blend of being in a movie and being in a television because show. it's a series. It's actually a series, it, right? Well, yeah, it's a series. I, it, it's, a, you know, it's a mini-series. Right, a mini-series. Right. But it's all because it, there's a lot of actors in it and who, who are now very successful, you know, returning cast members from the original movie. Um, they very... Tricky schedules And it, uh, everything had to be Very figured out And it really was Like a jigsaw puzzle To get everybody there So when I worked On Bored to Death For instance Jonathan had a very clear idea Of the season And a very detailed outline And many of the scripts Most all of them He had written mm-hmm. Which is very unusual That said Certain things are still Coming together And the priority goes To the getting the first scripts Ready to shoot, and then you sort of go from there. A- and at times, maybe you'll shoot one episode and then scenes from the one right after it. Like on a movie, though, because the whole script is basically usually figured out, like in the overnight, the movie is bookended by a scene in a park, basically. Right. Um, in TV, it would be almost impossible to shoot a scene, but on What Had American Summer, the whole thing was written, so we shot. It was like really like shooting a gigantic movie show because the whole like we would I would shoot a scene in the morning from one episode, like episode one, and then two hours later, one from episode seven. Um, and, and in terms of the look of things, I mean, I agree that the budgets are shrinking, and there is a, this making low budget movies. It's the way a lot of movies are being made, and you're right that things have to shrink. They all take place in a house. There's only four people. And that and there is a model for that, it seems like. And on one hand I love the idea of not waiting around and, and and that's what I loved. Like I used to be in a band in the late nineties, early two thousands, still at a, at on a big label. And there was like um for better or for worse, like we could only go into the studio to record when it was we were allowed to right and a studio was like a big expensive yes, thing that's right then technology changed and now that's like absolutely ba- almost yeah like this the, you know i love the band tame impala mm-hmm. and um you know he makes that in his house you can yeah, watch videos crazy. of him and he's just like he hits record in one room and then runs into another yeah. room and starts playing the drums and it's amazing sound and it's yeah. amazing sounding so all of it's changing and um you know i but maybe there is a way like where you could you could listen to that tame Paul album and you wouldn't believe that it was done right. uh, in a man's house maybe there'll be some way like who knows they'll invent some way to make a movie for $100,000 that will look like some uh, beautiful super slick movie with uh, you know with that quality but I I do know like when I'm i only really have seen a few television shows and to be honest with you it's it's not even i don't even try to compare the two things because um going especially to a movie theater Mm. it's it's to me the ultimate experience it's it's so nice it's we are all focusing on one thing and Mm -hmm. we are watching it and we are we can't pause it and whatever when you're watching something in your house if it's especially a you know, a show or something It it just... I don't even can think of it As like the same thing Even if it looks incredible They're just different to me And I wonder what it would be like To go watch a series In a movie theater Just because yeah. the, the environment also like plays into how i feel about something do you think that people miss
1: the idea of a kind of visual grandeur that isn't a marvel movie i mean i think part of the global appeal for a movie like the grand budapest hotel was how visually inventive it was Mm -hmm. how cinematic it was how unlike tv it looked and you can't get that kind of experience yet Yet mm-hmm. on TV, and that people wanted to see that movie as a theatrical right. experience because of I don't know how delicately handcrafted it right. might be, how how tactile the imagery was, and that maybe on TV I don't know how Grand Budapest Hotel looks on a TV screen. Yeah. I've seen it like at the ArcLight. Yeah. Well, however you feel about it, Wes Anderson, and we can yeah. go into the pros sure. and cons of Wes as a as an auteurist, as an auteur sure. filmmaker, one of the last ones mm-hmm. in American movie making. You know, that's a statement. And it is And it is something that, whether you like Wes's movies or not, you just cannot deny that there is this mind at work, this sensibility mm-hmm. at work, and that there is a playful visual grandeur to it that you just want to see on a screen, mm-hmm. you know, on a big screen, mm-hmm. not necessarily on an iPad. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what's leaving the cinema experience. Sure, there's Age of Ultron. Sure, mm-hmm. a good one like Mad Max, Fury Road, or whatever. Movies that... Use the medium mm-hmm. to take advantage of their bigness, but I think what everyone's missing is that mid-scale movie.
2: Yeah, well, it's gone. It is. Gone. I mean, Basically, they, it's gone. Yeah, but also, I, I I'm curious to know if, I mean, it's not an original idea, but like as the the new uh, younger generation grow up, I mean, are they even going to consider what you're talking about? No, I mean, it's not true. like they're not gonna th- they're not gonna think like visually beautiful or. Because they don't know. I mean, I don't even know if they'll think in those ways. Yeah, it's...
1: (sighs) You're born in 1980, yeah. and it's very well known. Your mother is Talia Shire, who was Connie Corleone, mm-hmm. and The Godfather, and Godfather Part Two, which was also, you know, she was also nominated for an Oscar for, and Rocky, which she was also nominated for an Oscar for, and your uncle is Francis Ford Coppola, and your cousins are Sofia Coppola and Roman Coppola, and I think people might automatically assume you were raised in a super connected, very Hollywood-ish family, mm-hmm. but the fact remains that your uncle was notoriously un-Hollywood, in a sense, as was your mother, despite their successes, they really weren't members of the Hollywood community in that sense. I mean, your uncle was a maverick who really wanted to reimagine a Hollywood system, the Hollywood system. So I think when people might roll their eyes about the family Mm -hmm. and nepotism coming into Mm -hmm. play, it's not that simple. I mean, you really weren't a Hollywood royalty in that sense. Do you think that this was part of the fake narrative of the Coppolas that some people had? That everything became slightly easier because of the circumstances, and is there some truth to the notion that it was easier for, for you guys me because of your uncle's success?
2: I don't think so, and and I, the only reason I could say I don't think so is because that I mean I know so I mean because it wasn't my experience and Hollywood whether. You're actually even family is a nepotistic place. So many jobs, and it's all based on recommendations and luck. And it's yes. this weird thing, like related or not. Um, I, I hear it all the time. It's like I have a friend who's looking for it. Can we? Ha- it's just part of the whole thing. Yeah. That said, I, my belief is that if you were acting or directing or something, uh, at a certain point, I, I would think that nepotism is meaningless. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not trying to say, well, I'm, I'm still working and so and it doesn't exist, but I do think that if like someone got a job because of who they were and it was unjust, right. it, it wouldn't last. It, right. Maybe they wouldn't keep working, but um, my mom is so on hollywood it's mm-hmm. ridiculous. I mean, it's ridiculous. We we live in a, we, I grew up in a very nice house and that might be the only like real Thing that you mm-hmm. could say, all right. And I went to a private school. Right. Beyond that, it was shockingly um, lo fi I mean, my mom detests Hollywood, mm-hmm. and, and she still talks about Hollywood as if it's like some gang of people that are trying to like get you, or like the mm-hmm. Fox and Pinocchio. Like she's mm-hmm. always like, it's always like, be careful. Even now, I mean, even the other day, she was like texting me something like. You know, you may hear this, you may hear that, but watch it back. I mean, it's literally, it's, like a, it's fucking unbelievable.
1: One of the things we have talked about here on the podcast with certain guests are their memories of growing up in L.A. and their high yeah. school experiences. The writer Michael Tolkien in mm-hmm. the early to mid-60s at Beverly Hills High, the writer Bruce Wagner in the early 70s at Beverly Hills High, Matthew Weiner in the late 70s, early 80s at Harvard School for Boys, my own experiences in that same time frame at Buckley, Brandon Boyd mm-hmm. uh, from Incubus at Calabasas in the late 80s, early 90s, and Ariel Pink in the Early nineties at Beverly Hills High, and you're attending Winward mm-hmm. uh, in Culver City in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. And what are your memories of LA at that time? And what and what was that high school like? I mean, I've heard a lot about Winward. Uh, I've never been there. I don't even know if I really knew anyone who yeah. went to Winward. But it is like Buckley, where I went, a very very small school. I think yeah. Buckley from nursery school. Were you a lifer? I entered in uh, fifth grade. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, I can't speak for Winward now, but my experience was. In the beginning, it was incredible. My older brother Matthew's five years older than me, and that's like the he. I think he had like this incredible. Like I would go pick him up from school, and there'd be girls like in bras sunbathing on their cars, and it had a mm. and it was uh, and I sort of got the last taste of that. Like uh, it was a, it was like really like it seemed like a paradise. Like the dean of students would be playing chess with kids, and it it was nice. And there were great teachers, like incredibly inspiring teachers and it wasn't like crossroads is another Mm -hmm. private school here which their arts program is pretty formidable it seems like and i mean i know a lot of people went there and the things they learned were they just it was beyond anything that we had um at the time and i loved it it was Hard in the beginning. Seventh grade was a real um, shock to my system because I came from a school that was a bit more loosey goosey um, and amazing, and I think gave me like freedom as a kid mm-hmm. to ex- explore. And but when I got to school and there were like actual grades, right? I was
1: screwed. Well, another thing that happens to you when you're—I don't know if you're thirteen or fourteen—were your father dies. Yeah. And were your parents still married at that time, or were they were yeah. they, they were still married? Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine how this affects someone because my father died when I was 28. Yeah. I still had a hard time yeah. when he died prematurely at 28. I can't imagine at that age, with all the things that you have to deal with as a young male adolescent, yeah. this hits you. How did you process it and how did you deal with it? And how did it end up affecting you sure. for a few years afterwards?
2: Well, as you know, it's as you say, too... It, it's revealing itself constantly um, But especially now that I have kids oh, It also yes. like hits, it takes a different yeah. thing But I mean to be honest with you It was a moment where The circumstance was odd Because um, his uh, funeral Was on my 14th birthday So I had like a We had a funeral And then a wake slash birthday party So I had a cake um, But everyone We had just come from the actual cemetery. Um, and that was like a moment in my life where I, what, like uh, I do, I was handed a birthday card. It said, happy birthday on the outside. And on the inside it said, we're so sorry. And... You um,
1: cannot make this up.
2: N- you, you can't. Make this up. And, and honestly, like that was sort of the moment where I laughed. And I just, I think that that was like a... It, Though I didn't probably like think about it in these exact terms, I felt life is very weird how l- happy and sad are just like they're so close together in a weird way, or you know this is absurd, and I kind of laughed and and maybe that was a defense like maybe I was laughing and and you know but it it was um it it was a strange moment where I kind of like thought everything was it was beautiful and meaningless. I can't describe it um it was weird
1: I saw Bottle Rocket uh, Wes's first movie when it came out in I think only one theater in LA in February of 1996 and I was dating someone in New York who had come out to visit me in L.A. while I was out here for a couple of months during the winter, visiting family and friends and escaping the cold of New York. And so I wanted to go to a movie. and He really wasn't into movies, but we went to an early matinee in Century City as long as we could go to the beach afterwards. Hmm. And we were in a huge empty theater, and I think we might have been only two of five people in it. And I loved the movie, and he fell asleep. And something new was announcing itself in American movies In that period, there was a new voice, a new look. It was highly stylized, yet very personal. And it was a big moment. And I thought Owen Wilson's Dignan was this genius creation. And I also thought, foolishly, that Bottle Rocket was going to be a big deal and people were going to be talking about it. But really outside of the industry, that really didn't happen. And then seeing Rushmore in December of 1998 on the Upper West Side, where it played for one week for Oscar consideration, it was just this kind of confirmation of Anderson's talent. And it was, again, a once-in-a-lifetime role for you. Mm-hmm. It's kind of star-making role in the best prep school movie ever made. Mm-hmm. Rushmore cost around $20 million to make in $97, 98 and that is that is the figure bandied around on the Internet. That's a lot of money. And it really is one of the last great American films where you see the money spent. Mm-hmm. The era in which physical beauty that, yes, money can buy this, and that a talented, somewhat unknown filmmaker can spend that money on his vision on that kind of grand scale, well, it's gone. And that last decade where there was still the money to envision a movie like Rushmore is gone... The widescreen theatricality is gorgeous and really not seen much anymore. And it represented this moment, much as P.T. Anderson's Boogie Nights did the year before, where a young American filmmaker was making epic-looking personal and auteurist movies on a grand scale. Wes has said visually that Rushmore was influenced by the look of Roman Polanski's Chinatown, hmm. which seems odd, but when you watch the movies in tandem, it makes sense. And as well as The Graduate and Harold and Maude were also visual references for Wes. I was just going to you about um there are, you know that there are fans and there are non fans yeah. of the Anderson style and there are the pros and cons of Wes Anderson. Not everyone uh, has fallen in line with praising him at the time Rushmore came out and ever since. I mean Roger Ebert was not a fan of Rushmore. Yeah. Richard Schickel of Time Magazine was not a fan of Rushmore. And Rushmore was the beginning that revealed this divide in people's reactions to Wes Anderson's movies. And even with the success of the Grand Budapest Hotel continues to this day, You know, there are fans and there are detractors. Mm-hmm. He's he is actually quite divisive. One of the more interesting anecdotes is a piece that Wes wrote for the New York Times about how he screened Rushmore for his mm-hmm. favorite film critic, Pauline Kael, maybe eight years after she had retired from reviewing films for mm-hmm. The New Yorker. And he drove to her house after contacting her on the phone. And she was not well at the time. She was suffering from Parkinson's and would die a few years later. And after he showed her the film, she said, I generally don't know what to make of this movie, which unnerved Anderson because Kale was his favorite critic and someone he had learned a lot from as a young man reading her reviews, as has, I think, every filmmaker from mm-hmm. my generation, including Quentin Tarantino, who talks about her a lot. But let's talk a little bit about criticism yeah. and the divide between fans and not fans. The New York Times critic A.O. Scott summed it up when he wrote in a review of one of Anderson's films, Quote, his films can be unstintingly fussy, vain, and self-regarding, but nonetheless beautifully handmade objects as apt to win affection as to provoke annoyance. Mm -hmm. And I think the hermetic tweeness affects also the acting in some of the movies as well. And I think it. It's notable that in over 20 years, no actor from a Wes Anderson movie has ever been nominated for an Oscar. Does any of this register at all? Can you understand the divide? And can you see both sides of the story of a reaction towards Wes's work? Or are you firmly in one camp?
2: No, I to a fault, I try at all times to see everyone's angle on it. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with some of the people's criticisms, but that's fine with me. I mean, that's okay. I mean, right. I think that's the great thing about movies is that... You can. We can all see the same movie and all have a different reaction, and we're all right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's my exactly. I mean, that's my theory. If someone says they don't like it, wow. I who am I to tell someone they to like? Try to change them. I mean, that's, no, I know. Yeah, and just in life in general, I try to always let everyone have their space to be whoever they want to be, and it's not, you know. And in, and in truth, I'm open to being affected by other people's thoughts, even if they're the exact opposite of mine. That's completely. You know, I, just, agree. I have no. Like I've listened to a lot of the shows this season and you've been talking about relatability and people looking for things that are relatable to them. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, so much of like these technologies, it's all about, we think you'd like... You know, you've rated this, so can we suggest this movie to you? It's right. all about, like, honing it in. Netflix does that. And right, I, exactly. I would actually yeah. love, like, a. I would love the version of that where it says, you hated this, so we think you'd love this. I mean, why not? Uh, I, I'm, like, a person who also, like, I'm open to recommendations. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. like, I love, like, a certain kind of pop music, and mm-hmm. I love it. Like, I just, like, my, my friend, like, I have this friend who loves, like, hardcore music, and I just, I'm not, I'm an angry person, but... I missed the hardcore thing. That's just not. I like melodic, like well-constructed pop music. Yeah. That said, if a guy was like, "Listen to this record," it's just two hours of someone just like screaming. I would like to listen to it just yeah. to see what happens. Yeah. No. So you know. Way. So I, in terms of West, I think it's absolutely fine if someone doesn't like him. I do like it, obviously. It's, he is my I think my mentor and is my best you know one of my best friends, like a brother to me, and has had a profound effect on my life and I know the work that goes into them. And I also, in terms of like the way things look, you know, more than anyone I know, that's not like a put on. Right thing. I mean, that is just somehow that's an emotional thing. Yeah. That is just yeah. what comes out of him. Yeah. And I remember him talking about it to someone. Someone said uh, it was cr- was bringing up a critique or something, and he said, "Well, I don't know what to say if I was to change. That's like someone asking me to change my signature. Exactly. Uh, it's just this is just what how I write my name. So, like, I've worked with other people who like try to do something. They like it's a every decision is uh, on purpose. That that this is just how he. Thinks of things. I mean, it's his life—not just visually. It's just the way he is. Is you know, that's who he is. So he's very pure in that way. What do you think
1: when Whoopi Goldberg asks you essentially, "Why aren't there any black people in a Wes Anderson movie?" And pointedly ask you to give her yeah. headshots to Wes Anderson. I mean, does she have a point or is there no point at all to that inquiry? Because I'm not sure there is any point to it. And and it mm-hmm. is suggestive of where we are now in this kind of crazy, fascist everyone-must-be-included culture yes. that we must include uh-huh. even the ones who don't want to be included right. and yet we must include them or else yeah. you're a racist or uh-huh. a transphobic or whatever. And you know, every artist has their own world and those worlds mm-hmm. are fantasies and they are not corporations or studios that must bow down to a kind of status quo, though, of course you know, let's get real, plenty of movies do and are super pandering, but when you start asking questions the way Whoopi did about the white problem of mm-hmm. Wes Anderson, and she's hardly the first person to bring this up, you know, I freeze a little when I look at the context of Anderson's work. And, you know, I went through a Twitter rant about Moonrise Kingdom, again, both admiring Anderson's skill, mm-hmm. but also finding the twee aesthetic, mm-hmm. a little claustrophobic. I learned that word on your
2: podcast, by the twee. way. I didn't know what that was. Oh, uh, well, I, neither did Carrie Brown's, you <laughs> know, Fred. No, Anderson I know. Either.
1: So I heard so, it, yeah. But, you know, I had <laughs> joked along with many others at the time that it was like the whitest film I'd ever seen mm-hmm. and with, with the whitest audience I'd ever seen a movie with. And in that same moment, um, Ezra Koenig mm-hmm. from Vampire Weekend, when he was on the podcast, he had gone through something similar. And we talked about this brief mm-hmm. moment when after Contra was released, there was this kind yeah. of mini Vampire Weekend backlash where the band was ceremoniously crowned the whitest band of all time. Uh-huh. And this was, of course, very derogatory. And it's this thing that's happening, this burgeoning attempt at a post-racial culture where... You know, equality and inclusivity must happen within the arts Mm -hmm. or else. Mm -hmm. And if you are emblematic of this resistance to this idea, then the social justice wars are going to shut you down. Mm -hmm. You know, forcing this ideology upon artists, which is in a way what the whoopee thing was on The View, Mm -hmm. is a very new thing in the culture. And I'm wondering, what do you feel about this, if anything?
2: My gut feeling is that. I am up for everybody being in something. And my real feeling is, like, it's just got to be, is it right for the story? Like, for instance, Mozart in the Jungle, you know, in the classical music world, it's a very mixed cultural world. And if you look at our show, it's a lot of white people. Mm -hmm. Now, I would like to put more races and cultures in it, and we're going to do that not because I feel like we have to, I just feel like that's because actually it's more true to that world. I don't like the idea of ever feeling like you have to do something to make it okay with everybody. I just want to do what's best, because in a way, I sort of feel like if you're trying so hard to please everyone, it's almost like working against itself. But by the way, when the Whoopi Goldberg thing happened, it's funny because, like really I was just thinking like I can't believe I'm with Whoopi Goldberg right Mm. now that was more what was going through my mind and that she's doing this voice um, Mm. which was surreal Um, (laughs) uh, and um, I told Wes it was going to happen and he loves Whoopi Goldberg he was so excited about it Um, in terms of the larger issue of it I just always think do what's just natural to the thing it will it will can it reveal itself to you while you're doing it like what needs to be a part of it after
1: Rushmore you toured with the band Mm -hmm.
2: people tend to forget you
1: did make other movies you made Mm -hmm. CQ you made Mm -hmm. Spun you made Slackers you Mm -hmm. made Simone but you really didn't have a leading man role until I.R. Huckabees Mm -hmm. and that David O. Russell which I knew you guys were working on something before then Mm -hmm. that didn't pan out but that David O. Russell really writes this script and writes this part for you Mm -hmm. to star in and I loved I Heart Huckabee's. It was one of my favorite Thanks. movies of that decade. I went in expecting to hate it because the reviews were so divisive. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, oh, could it really be this bad? And then I realized that most of them just didn't get it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be a movie snob and say, guys, you didn't get it. But yeah. I really believe they didn't get it. And I think the reputation of that movie will get better and has gotten better. But I just was taken with how funny and fast and sharp the whole thing was and mm-hmm. how it was completely correct about everything about human behavior mm-hmm. and the way the world works within this rapid paced slapstick comedy and I ended up seeing it more than a few times um, Your Mother also has a brilliant yeah. cameo in that movie and I encourage listeners to see this movie if you haven't there's a great cast including Mark Wahlberg yeah. Naomi Watts Jude Law Dustin Hoffman Isabel Perrot, but I think most people know about I Heart Akabees because of the YouTube clip mm-hmm. of David O Russell screaming at Lily Tomlin who's also in the movie during the shoot that went viral and it's upsetting to watch a little bit and Tomlin has said that she ultimately forgave Russell because mm-hmm. she said it was a very difficult shoot and she could understand how a director could lose it and I want to talk about the idea of the person helming a movie mm-hmm. and the pressures put on the director and what that can ultimately do to the actors he's directing. Mm -hmm. And that was not the first or the last time that Russell had problems with actors. George Clooney has been very vocal about his battle stories and physical altercation with David on Three Kings, his main complaint being that Russell treated the crew terribly and Clooney couldn't deal with it anymore. And then in the recent Sony leaks, an email was sent to Sony Pictures chairman Michael Linton from Jonathan Alter, the veteran journalist and a close friend of Linton's and who is also producing Alpha House for Amazon. And in the leaked emails that were private and never supposed to be public, Alter writes in what seems like a back and forth about whether to keep Russell's deal with Sony – I know Russell is brilliant, but we have someone who worked closely with him on American Hustle and not only are the stories about him reforming himself, total bullshit, but the new stories of his abuse and lunatic behavior are extreme even by Hollywood standards. Russell might have behaved while making The Fighter, but acted so crazy on American Hustle that it's another George Clooney situation where a lot of people will not work with him again. Russell actually grabbed one guy by the collar, cursed out people repeatedly in front of others, and so abused Amy Adams that Christian Bale got in his face and told him to stop acting like an asshole. He treated the crew like shit, demanded his own bathrooms at all times and frighten people as he famously had in three kings linton replies back i'm not sure why you're asking here and then alter writes back I'm not asking you anything i'm just figured you might not always get the intel you need if you were considering signing him for another film which they do not do now the leaked emails made international news i and love demanding bathrooms and well i i what demand bathrooms when i when well, i have to do something yeah, like that too like... that doesn't seem like a like a problem at all <laughs> yeah. but that's the one thing that stops me about this whole thing i love but... that the guy's just like writing it this and this and and (laughs) demanding bathrooms. (laughs) 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 But there's not, you know, there's not a from Amy Adams or Christian Bale mm-hmm. about denying any of this, about clarifying any of this. It's just total, total silence. Now, the question really is about all of this. Did you ever see any problems? Was there any of that kind of pressure when you were wor- working with David or Russell? And if so, what did you think caused it on that set? Or have you ever seen other directors you've worked with crack under the pressure of making a kind of studio movie or making any movie?
2: Well, I don't think he cracked. I I, see, I don't view it as like a crack. I mean, but I first of all, I'll say that For the most part like even though i love everyone to have their own feeling and i try to give everyone their space my preference is to be in a somewhat positive environment because you know there are directors that are really tough and i've you can't get along with everyone i've definitely been in very uncomfortable and not fun situations and it sucks but whatever i think it sucks because the it's a lot of work mentally you know to be on a set and the hours can be brutal and if you're it could just be that much easier if everyone's in a somewhat good mood there's someone who's not like easily offended yeah um but you know i watched like the straw dogs the making of the old straw dogs Mm -hmm. on the criterion dvd you should watch it there's a great miniature documentary that was made Mm -hmm. at the time and sam peckinpah i mean the way he unwinds between takes is he has a door like a just a like a regular wooden door that he's that's not you know in a in a door frame it's Off, And he throws a dagger at it, and then he goes and picks it up, pulls it, walks away, and throws a dagger at it, and walks away. And that's just, like, just this, that's his thing. And that would be, uh, and just his, what he's exuding is a very, you know, it's a super, like, just, there's a kind of, I don't know, aggression or uh, whatever. That would be maybe harder to be around than someone who was, that just wouldn't get the best out of me, but it might get something different out of me, which would be fine. Um, I always think about this in terms of like the experience and the work, they're not always connected especially in movies, like the product and the experience are very often disconnected. You know, you hear about people like, like as the more you work and you know, actors, you meet people, they talk about how was it? Oh, oh, everyone's laughing. It's the best. It's so fun. And you see it and it doesn't feel like that when you watch the movie. In terms of David, I, um, I would work with them again. Mm. And that's, I guess the most simple way of saying it is that, that movie was a very significant thing for me he he did he wrote it for a long time with me in mind and we really worked together hard i would go to his house every day and we'd go on hikes he lives in near mandeville canyon and i just found the best way to do it was just to be around him all the time and i would work in one room with a script he would be doing stuff with the production but anytime there was 10 minutes we would just go for a walk and, um, I mean, what can I say? I think he's an artist, and I think what's interesting about his movies, you look at those all those movies, they're so different, the beginning ones. I mean, foreign disaster, Spain the Monkey, through. not a lot of directors do that, like kind of a sp- spread like that, but they all do have a... You know, he does always come at it from a slightly different angle, especially with the dialogue or, you know, what characters are interested in. But, yeah, I, w- I would work with him again, and I don't think he cracked. I just think he's a he's a unique person and it was unfortunate that that was just cap having to be captured. Yeah. And we live in such a weird time when now people are doing fake set outrages That's Yeah. It's insane. Make it right like, like, I mean, honestly, people lose it all the time. I mean, people do just lose it. I mean, they've been around, especially like, you know, everyone's talking, it's like, guys, everyone can shut the fuck up. Like, you know, cinematographers, like I need everyone to, it just happens. And I think sometimes it is a lot of pressure there is a lot of talking there are a lot of moving parts and time is money yeah it just happens so people obviously feel it but i don't think like in that particular case with david he cracked i think the whole experience was very personal the movie was personal he worked on it for a long time and for whatever reason it happened it's true 30 minutes later we were working again on a scene
1: first time that you've been writing a show more or less mm-hmm. you're not the showrunner
2: well there are three of us that are the show me paul whites and roman coppola are the three showrunners and we do it like in this kind of carousel Thing where the seasons divided into thirds, and each of us was sort of in charge of that section.
1: But you've mentioned that this can be when you're doing the show an exhausting process, yeah, and that you're up late and that it's just an all-consuming thing. But w- what are you getting out of it? I mean, you must love the show in a way. I well, mean, what is your process when you're like when you have to like get things done on this show? I it's mean, it's
2: crazy. I, well, first of all, there's a thrill of typing something up and you know it's going to be made Mm -hmm. Um, that's like exciting i didn't like have a trajectory as a screenwriter as a writer so i you know you hear a lot of people say i've written 50 movies and none of them have been made right which is you know how hard it is, and it's how it the is. nature of the business. Yeah, right, right. so I'm in this uh, strange, like, lucky, crazy, weird position where we're writing something is going to be happening. It's stressful, but it's exhilarating to know that what we're doing is going to happen. But it's it's crazy. The, the hours are are nuts.
1: You also mentioned that you have been watching that show called Showrunners. Yes was it a show or was it a, just it was a movie. movie? A movie called Showrunners, and that you had to turn it off because it was just too depressing for you. It made me sick. Anybody kind of working in television will automatically understand this. And for the layman, why don't we just tell them what a showrunner is?
2: showrunner is someone who is in charge of the show as the kind of uh, ultimate guiding light of the tone and the voice and the, and, and the stories, like comes up with the basic season, the shape of the season, and manages a room full of writers. Uh, together they break the season and the stories. I'm learning all the, the lingo. I've learned A story, B story, know, Runner.
1: Break the story. i learned break, break
2: the, the break Story. Yep, uh, I, break. I've learned Track It. Uh-huh. and uh-huh. I've, I've tr- Let's Track This. I've learned Emotional Journey.
1: Emotional. Journey. And I've learned, yeah, I've learned a love lot of these phrases. I've learned
2: some really good words and uh, and, and phrases. But so that's a showrunner is uh, someone who is in charge uh, of what the season is going to be. Um, but sometimes the but showrunner changes. isn't the creator. No, right. uh, No, absolutely. Right. And it and it does. It seems like it changes. And now that there's like different ways of watching things. It yes. seems that there are different functions. For instance, Jonathan Ames, you know, he was in here he does it in a slightly different way. The Wet Hat American Summer people do it in slightly way and then I think all the way down to people who literally write everything like mike white unenlightened he's the only there was no writer's room
1: well the same thing happened with me on an unproduced season of shows that uh episodes i wrote for a show called the follower uh yeah i was asked by lionsgate to write every hour and i mean they paid me for it but it was still like wow. no other writers were contracted and did you like that i loved it yeah that's I amazing
2: that they offered you that
1: Well, what happened was we sold the pilot to HBO, and um, the uh, the pitch, the script hadn't been uh, written yet, and it was Lionsgate, uh, myself, and actually Jason Blum was Hmm. part of that too. And then I wrote the pilot, and HBO had problems with it, though, in terms of like how risque the material was, really, yes, even for HBO. And so then we moved it, we were allowed to move it to Stars Hmm. and Stars wanted to just to get a sense of where it was going to write two more episodes. And then it moved to epics. And then I wrote three more episodes for them to get a sense of it. Look, I was being paid quite well. So there's no, I mean, it was kind of frustrating that it went on this trajectory where I actually wrote a season's worth of shows. And now it's, Uh. I think it's at Showtime, kind of just like languishing around with everyone trying to figure out maybe if we move it someplace else. But no, that whole notion of the writer being the auteur yeah. of the show is like a very cool thing because it yeah. does give the show a kind of voice that fights against the blandness mm-hmm. of the idea, the nature of television. I mean, you know, we've talked about this on this podcast a lot. Does anyone really need a hundred hours of content about the same people? Does anyone really need you know? 14 hours of uh, yeah. about the same guy right. or the same situation. It's a business decision. It's yeah. mostly a kind of business decision in yeah. terms of how many, I mean, how long a show should right. go on.
2: For, for you, like, when you were having to um, write those episodes, when you first pitched it, did you know what the whole season would be? Or were you, as each assignment came in, was it a discovery about where it was going? Like, were you able to sort of wander through it and think about it? I'm just thinking in terms of, like, when you sat down to write, did you have a basic idea of, like, what you needed to put down? Were you working off an outline? Uh, I always work off an outline.
1: So I pretty much knew going in to pitch the show what the entire first season was going to be. Yeah. You kind of have to do that. And they want that. Yeah. they just don't, you know, they they, they sometimes want the idea of where two or three seasons are going to be. That's tough. That's a little bit tougher. But the first season, no. And, I mean, look, I know people who work in writers rooms and find it incredibly debilitating on one level kind of depressing on one level depending on the show yeah because i know writers who are working on shows that they think are great yeah that's very rare that's yeah. very rare and then there are writers who are working on you know something for network and that can be a kind of despairing yeah. thing to go in and keep being in a writers room for a network television shows yeah. it's basically all network television shows are i really think subpar i mean i think quite terrible but I don't know. I mean, in, in a weird way, it's kind of, you know, it's a gig. Mm-hmm. It's hard enough to get jobs in this town. Mm-hmm. So mostly they're grateful. But getting back to what you said about the um, – what I really felt like I was doing and which I think like a lot of, quote, unquote, artists, meaning a director – well, actually not a director. I'm, I'm talking about a, a, a creator of a show is now – I was looking at it as a novel. I was writing a novel. I was writing a long-form novel that was going to take place about a group of people over a, I don't know, about a period of four months, first season, and... I don't know it felt like mm. a very exciting creative thing and i have to say with one or two other shows that i created i felt the same thing mm. i felt like i was just like writing yeah i didn't feel it, cool. only only one time did i feel the confines of a kind of corporate culture right and that was when i decided to go ahead and pitch a show to the cw to josh schwartz and so he liked it and bought it and I was prepared because it, it's a very different vibe writing for cable companies, hmm. Showtime and HBO and Stars. It is a completely different vibe yeah. than because you usually at one of those places have like more or less one point person yes. who you kind of deal with, right? On a network, you would get a call saying, okay, can you be on the phone in an hour? And they'd send a list of the people who are going to be on the call. And Mm -hmm. it it could be 16 people Mm -hmm. on the call and giving you notes. And then your Mm -hmm. producer is kind of helping you out with it. But the rate at which you moved through the development process at the network Mm -hmm. was shocking and quite scary and exhausting on a certain level. Now, again, I mean, it is changing because as you said – People are creating stuff for... I just sold a thing for uh, for a web series. Mm -hmm. And the notion is that, okay, each episode is 11 minutes long. We need eight of them for a season. Hmm. That's a completely different mode in terms of how to think of of a show compared to... You know We need
2: 12 one hour episodes Yeah It's like splitting up a movie uh, that, Yeah it's like before a movie It's like that Then a movie Then a Like in terms of time It's actually back to a movie length In a way It's but 88 it's, minutes But
1: it's so strange now How we are free of the confines yeah. Of the idea uh, That Oh well I need to see a movie That is an hour and 48 minutes Yeah The studio would like it Under two hours yeah. Can you cut this out of it And that we've kind of moved Out of this realm Of a fixed notion of how lengthy the yeah. content should be. I mean, yeah. and, and again, yeah. for Mozart in the Jungle, that must be kind of, again, freeing. I mean, you have how many episodes for a season? Ten. Each half an hour. Yes. So it's like you're basically shooting, like, what, a five-hour movie. Yeah.
2: But you know what's funny? It's like I was just, when you were saying it was like a novel, when you would be writing, because I think one thing for me that's, you know, and I'm doing it with two other people, and, and we also h- hired a great um, group, small group of writers who were who were helping, and some just came in to consult, which is a new. You know, I'm learning about, it. and that's a new thing. People will come in and kind of look at what you have and talk to you about. Oh, it, which I've been, which offered, is, that job. I've been really, offered that job. It's really, yeah. it's actually really nice because it's a fresh perspective, and the person just talking to you, and then you kind of take, you know, it's like notes, but from someone you. Respect their their notes and can give you like some Insight but the thing is Like when you're writing it it's tricky sometimes Because it's supposed to be thought of as One big thing and yet It's when subdivided Into these little half hour things If you were watching a five and a half hour movie Every half hour something there's not a beginning and a middle and an end to every half hour, in a, in a way, like to a big five-and-a-half-hour movie or novel. But in a show, does it have to happen? Like, could you just have 30 minutes where nothing happens? Because in a big movie, that would be kind of part of it sometimes, in a way. Uh, of course you could. So but
1: I think, don't you, though? I mean, as we both have overseen shows or written shows, I mean, I do want – Climax of sorts me too. in each, and, and I no, think the too. viewer does too. So, so they just it just is like automatic in the nature of writing a, a yeah. show. Like, I want something to lead up to something and then happen, and then how does everyone deal with it, or do we just go straight to black? And you're gonna have to wait till you know, it next is time.
2: so hard. Like, literally, I have these white hairs. In my beard I know from the show Like a president goes white Like when they go mm-hmm. into office I know what's happening And it's so hard And I sit there And you just, I'm staring at it And you're trying to follow it And at the same time You're like How do I do this But it's too late for me To start watching tons of television To try to learn how to do it To be honest with you I can't That's probably best I'm just trying to do It's like, probably I'm, best that you're I'm not. almost like doing an imitation I'm writing like an imitation Of what I think my wife is watching we watch a lot of re- reality tv so i can tell I. you by the way i just discovered bachelor in paradise last night i had never watched that show <laughs> it's way more inter- i loved bachelor in paradise mm-hmm. because if you watch the bachelor the bachelorette if you don't like the bachelor the bachelorette the season is kind of uninteresting in a mm-hmm. way yeah. but i like there's can be lots of men and women here i'm I said to my wife why haven't I known about this show? That's a separate issue. But I'm trying to watch these shows, and like when you say things happen, like I'm just trying to learn the form of it. In the beginning of the episode, does something happen that they react to, or can it happen later? And also keeping a lot of characters in play, it's hard because we have a lot of great actors, and I'm just trying to make sure all of them, like what I'm thinking about at the end of the day is like, when I hand the actor the script, that they feel like we worked hard for them and give them something fun and that's sort of my goal but trying to do it all the time is kind of hard because it's like it's, you're cutting down other people's stuff but I remember like as an actor I'll walk on a set with sides and you're like reading the sides and you can see the writer stand there and you're just like oh just please don't let me ruin their dialogue and like butcher their stuff and just feeling kind of scared. And I also kind of thinking, God, it's so easy. Like they wrote it and now they can stand there and watch us like suffer and try to figure this out. Mm -hmm. But then on this end of it last year, I remember like walking on a set with sides and just thinking like, Oh God, please let them like these words and like feeling this like sense of responsibility um, in a way that I hadn't anticipated and also dealing with actors. I'd never dealt with actors before, like <laughs> the egos and the, and the moods or what they need or advice or I I've never been in a position to ever give an actor any type of input. Mm-hmm. And in, honestly, I sort of feel like I'm going to let the actor lead the way Although that's not how I prefer to work in my – when I work, I like to be given a lot of rules. I I prefer that.
1: No, I notice this with actors, and I – even on uh, all the shorts that I've made And the thing that surprised me the most was how much the actors needed from me as the director and how important that relationship was. I was completely thrown off by it. Like I, uh, I thought because of how we were shooting some of these shorts that I shot, kind of guerrilla style. We f- we would I would hear from my producer that okay, we got a house, we got the cameras, we're going to go shoot on Saturday. Come up with a thing that will fit in with the rest of the shorts we're right. making. Yeah. and uh, this was actually these shorts were are really the basis for what uh, we're going to be doing at full screen with this web series. So uh, we kind of made it right. as a as a, a showcase to say, all right, this is a this is a much bigger series here. Yeah. But this is our
2: this is our Kind of impressionistic yeah. ideas. You've talked about this before, like shooting downtown at night, like yeah. running. Okay, yeah.
1: And I, I'm so surprised when I talk to certain actors. I couldn't believe that these actors on this, a per soul ad that I made,
3: mm-hmm.
1: which took about three days to shoot, I could not believe when an actor came up to me and said, You're so nice to me. I can't believe this. I said, What do you mean? I'm just like giving you, I'm answering your questions. I said, People don't do that. They just kind of point. Sometimes I don't talk to the director. Mm. I said, really? Wow. And I would think it would be so weird to work that way as a filmmaker to not have that rapport with your actors. Mm -hmm. I know the DP is an incredibly important relationship Mm -hmm. for a director, Mm -hmm. but equally I would think the actors. Have you ever in a situation where you were uncomfortable on a set because you feel you did not have that rapport with a director? Or have you been pretty lucky?
2: I've been pretty lucky. I've never had a director who, like, didn't talk to me. I hear stories about that kind of more like it seems like with action type things where there's so much going on and it's about explosion you know like I've I've heard more of the, that those types of stories or maybe on stories where a director is very overwhelmed and maybe it's just their personal style I've been lucky to um work with people who are pretty good at you know articulating what they want and for me like the more I can know someone the better in a way because it's sort of like if you're making someone a mixtape I could make a mixtape that could have all kinds of music in it, but if I sort of knew what kind of music you liked generally, I could, like, really try to give you a mixtape of songs that you might like. So I like to, like, get to know the person, which is a luxury. I mean, not get to know them, like, I have to be best friends with them, because I've definitely worked with people I don't know them. I don't even, yeah, I I don't know their phone numbers or anything. But the more I can know someone, the better. But sometimes that's, like, a luxury, and also... Those are in situations where I've had a part that takes up a lot of the movie. Like I worked on a movie last year. I had a small part in it, and the director he was the awesomest person to me, and so nice to me, and kind to me. I didn't have time to become his friend because he had two stars in the movie. He was trying to manage. Oh, so movie is It was big eyes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, so yeah. I Tim was, Burton film. Yeah. yeah, so I basically felt like I'm not going to waste Tim Burton's time and say like what do you think about my character and like he has to worry about Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz and focus on them so that you know as much as I wanted to bug him and ask him questions I sort of was like that was kind of my I was just I wanted to hang back and um, just watch so I don't need to have like a super intimate relationship but he's he was so nice by the way he was amazing but it must
1: be different on a Wes Anderson movie because you've done so many and you also wrote a, a script yeah for Darjeeling Darjeeling Limited. Yeah. But I would imagine that for someone like Wes Anderson that the the set is uh, probably not chaotic, is probably very set up in terms of someone who's been doing this for 20 years, Mm -hmm. no matter how elaborate the movie is, Mm -hmm. that there's a guy there who's making this, who's pretty sure of knows exactly what he wants, more or less. And that must seem kind of different from directors who sometimes, you know, you talk to actors who worked with Terrence Malick mm-hmm. and just go, I have no idea what I just did. I don't know how I just yeah. gave 10 months of my life yeah. and this is what came out of it. Yeah. And that's why actors are usually quite bitter about working with Malick and yeah. won't do it again because, you know, an actor gives yeah. themselves over. I mean, even Sean Penn was talking about Tree of Life, which is personally, I think, a really good movie yeah. and I think kind of amazingly done. Mm-hmm. And the most successful of these late Later day mallet, impressionistic things. But even he said, I had, I mean, I was told it was this and I gave it to him. And then when it was all reassembled in editing, I felt like I'd been completely betrayed and that that was not really the the way that a filmmaker and actor relationship should be. And I also wonder if it's some, how different it is with someone like, I guess. Patrick Rice, who yeah. did The Overnight, which is essentially his first movie. And it is a movie called Creep mm-hmm. that he did with Mark Duplass, which is kind of a two-hander, and I think mm-hmm. they just made on their own by themselves. Yeah, they, just without, they just went with a, a camera. Them and, and a, a camera. Just the two of them. Mm-hmm. But The Overnight's different. I would just wonder, I mean, is I guess there's a kind of camaraderie-like feeling when a bunch of people get together and are making this movie that they all believe in. Mm-hmm. So the notion of someone being Difficult and kind of messing that up, usually it, you got, that's got to be resolved pretty early on or else it's just going to mess up the shoot. But what was it like working with him on that?
2: With Patrick? Yeah. It was awesome. I mean, there wasn't... We had no time. We did the whole thing in ten nights. The whole movie was made in ten nights. So it was this weird kind of combination of, like, you know, you're tired at night and it's there's a kind of, like giddiness like punch drunk giddiness because it wasn't like you're getting your body ready to do that you just start cold shooting at night and there was something fun about it the city you know the sun goes down the lights come up and what you know honestly what happens is most people on movies nowadays and me too everyone has a phone with them and they're you know you're just like having but everyone was asleep that we knew when we were making that movie So there was a kind of an amazing... so no one really
1: was looking at their phone. No. What was there to look at, right? It was so
2: weird. Like, there was an amazing... You know, the crew was only 14 people, and there was an amazing kind of quiet intimacy about it that made it... I don't know. It it didn't... It was not chaotic, um, and it was also not stringent or or yeah. like tough at all, but it wasn't like mess around time because we just had to keep going. We shot like eight pages a night, and we shot it basically chronologically. Mm-hmm. So the last scene in the bed where we're all mm-hmm. kissing and it was the last thing we shot.
1: Is it difficult to do a scene like that with Adam Scott? I mean, I've never seen you do that in a movie before, and I know we've gotten to the point where first of all, we're actors; we have mm-hmm. to do this, but still. That's an intimate thing, to kiss another actor, a male actor, in a kind of the, the beginning of a sexual kind uh, you know. Yeah. Was that hard to do, or was it just like, it's just part of the script? Uh, you know, I know that we, we're thankfully moving into an age where we're not locked in the puritanical notions of sexuality right. that I definitely grew up with. Yeah. Even in L.A. in the 70s or the 80s, there still was, compared to today, this freedom people have, yeah. which is, I welcome it. Is it different, or is there still remnants of that? And maybe there are still remnants of that, because that's kind of what gives that scene its buzz, Uh the electricity in it. Was it difficult to shoot?
2: Well, I think that for everyone just leading up to it the whole time you're shooting it's sort of like this thing that's waiting at the end of the shoot there's going to be this scene where we're going to kiss and then we're going to lie in bed you're going to give me a hand drop the girls are going to kiss they're going to get into bed and then all four of us are going to start kissing that's just sort of waiting there especially 10 days it's not a lot of time to like you know i met i literally met judith who plays my wife the day i started shooting shook her hand and we started shooting so it's like well, in 10 days, that's going to happen. And I don't even think in my real life I've moved that quickly. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's... And I think Adam, you know, he's a producer, and he said when he watched The Dailies, the first take of it were kissing, and then everybody at one time or another started giggling. Um, because I think it was like a release of just whatever but one thing that was nice about the way we shot it was it was kind of choreographed but kind of not like so we got in this huddle but Mm -hmm. then when the kiss started was sort of different every time how many Uh, times did you do it four times Mm -hmm. and uh it was like i think in the beginning it was just it was more just like how is this gonna work and it but i i always it was a it sounds like kind of cheesy to say but it was kind of a really beautiful night because That scene is not supposed to be funny. Right. And it's truly, like, this really intimate thing. And the room was intimate. The crew, everyone was... And it was... um, I think the first time I kissed him, there was a little... It was a release of tension. And I didn't expect, like, the goatee... I was thrown by the goatee in the beginning, like, on on my skin, Mm -hmm. his goatee. But what was more awkward was getting the hand job. Yeah. To be honest, because having to look, like, sexually... Pleased or happy mm-hmm. is a weird Thing on camera <laughs> like what Am mm. I you know I, that took More than the kiss I remember Like after the first take thinking like How do I look when This is happening I don't know how to be right now Do I right. lie and what do I So you know that was, was Uncomfortable
1: I to, feel that way during Real sex service. yeah so.
2: you, it, well, and, and I do too and then so and that's why the Camera <laughs> being there was like gosh I Haven't thought about this but it was – ended up – it was wonderful. How much
1: as a performer do you feel the need that you need to project a kind of likability? Wow. Because because what's so interesting about some of your performances – I mean, again, listen up, Philip, being the main one. And why it was such a jolt and why I think it really is a huge step forward for you, not that you weren't a really Ooh. good at film actor before well. then, was this is immersion. Like, I'm going to go for it, you know?
2: First of all, I'll talk about relatability. Relatability is an odd thing. I mean, I'm always curious about what makes someone a huge movie star or pop star, like what why them? And it's so interesting when sometimes people are like called an everyman or they're like the everyman that can but those people like in their personal lives are like, so far from being an every man. So, what is it about them that why, relating to them? What is it? And I'm so curious about what makes people go, that guy's awesome. He's like me. I'm like him.
1: Well, just, an, just an aside Matthew Modine, who often thought oh, the same I thing as a young actor, said he was trying to figure it out too. He was trying to figure out when he was 26, 27, what makes a guy a big American movie star. Yeah. And he started to look back and he realized, oh, they kill a lot of people.
2: Hmm. Interesting
1: that it was from John Wayne on to Stallone; they all kill people, huh. and it was like something that he realized. Even said Tom Cruise and uh, in in the Top Gun movie, uh, he just said, "I realize I'm never going to be able to do that hmm. because, you know, I'm a pacifist and yeah. I don't believe that." But anyway, I interrupted you, but that's, that that no, was that's his takeaway.
2: No, and that's interesting, and it's it's a I get that, and it's a kind of like it's a that's an '80s actor. That's exactly because in the '80s that was like now you can be a huge star and it's it's not even almost about you it's the movie that you like are lucky enough to be in that like gets you to sometimes those things i because think
1: people don't care about movie stars in the way they once did well millennials I th- and younger people they don't care yeah it's, i mean you know.
2: th- that's one thing but the likability thing for sure like with listen to philip for instance you couldn't think about him being likable you just had to hope that he would be like compelling Right, exactly. Like like in the beginning, I talk, We Alex and I talked about it, though. We were like, it, it, should we make him likable? Is there a version where he's no, more likable? And we talked no. about it, and any attempt to do that just made him seem passive-aggressive. And, yeah. you know, it just wasn't right. It, it's extreme, you know? He's an extreme, like, he's thinking that way. But I don't know, you know? It's sort of built into me, like in a way, like, my mom is an avid connoisseur of, like, 30s, 40s, 50s movies and knows a lot of them and is just, you know, and and books and myth, Greek myth and redemption and she's really, like, that's... And I wonder if in some way that kind of, like, big string, like, sweeping strings and, like, a guy turning around at the end, and, Mm -hmm. like, it, that's sort of, like, part of my memory bank growing up. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think it was until, like more recently that i started to think that like you could not like or, or 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 not totally trust the main person in something that's a new newer thing for me to be thinking about you know
1: well it's so strange that your mother was starred in maybe the movie that kind of set it off the godfather where we do have at its center a totally. very morally complicated oh, yeah. person michael corleone yeah. who begins with a kind of idealism or yeah. a kind of... He knows about his family. Yeah. He knows what they're yeah. capable yeah. of. And as he tells Kay perhaps prophetically, the, Diane Keaton, he says, that's my family, Kay, that's not me. Or something along yeah. those lines. And then, of course, he becomes the family. The door but, And that is really the point where American movies really began to get interesting uh-huh. with these morally complicated leads at the center of them. Yeah. And now it's rarer for movies to be made on that scale with yeah. that kind of that moral complication. The um,
2: Conversation, by the way, is my favorite film that, my uncle May, but also my favorite of those movies for some reason it's, it 's to me i just i 'm so fascinated by the re- the repetition of it this person who 's sort of like locked into this thing of trying to uncover keep returning to the same scene. I love that as a narrative thing um, and also making
1: us believe. That what he's believing is the truth, when in fact, it's an illusion. He's completely built this up in his head because of his own issues, let's say. So he completely misreads the situation, actually taking a sentimental narrative. He believes that the young couple is in harm's way without understanding that it could be much more sinister than that. Who did the music to The Conversation?
2: My mom's first husband. That's so David crazy. Shire. David Shire yes. did. That's
1: right. Yeah. And it has actually become a classic score. Yeah. You really hear it in weird things. And it's one of the most haunting the scores best. ever. And it really gives that movie oh. just such a, yeah. an overlay of.
2: Eeriness. It's the best. It's so beautiful. He also did the score for All the President's Men. That's a great score. People
1: don't
2: don't remember that there
1: really is a score for All the President's Men because so much of it is so quiet. All the President's Men, I think, is also a fantastic movie. I think people think of it as, oh, that's the Watergate movie where the two enterprise. It is really a study in. Menace in yeah. Washington in the summer yeah. dark parking lots yeah. just this kind of total unease where everyone's kind of paranoid everyone's mm. worried that something yeah. is happening there's no violence there's not a drop of blood no one is even killed yeah. but it really becomes an overwhelmingly suspenseful yeah. movie and beautifully shot by
2: Gordon Willis Oh Lewis. so beautiful
1: and it really it is one of the key examples of the 70s mainstream film as a piece of high art
2: yeah i mean i can't imagine much higher in a way i mean it's amazing
1: it gets repetitive to talk about the loss of an art form in Mm -hmm. a way but it has happened and we kind of just you know uh, have to deal with it and and i talk about art i'm talking about like someone decided to make that as a two hour and 25 minute film yeah with this kind of insight into it and this level of movie making Now that can't ever be done now. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that there's not great stuff being done on television or cable, but just that notion of getting an artist like Gordon Willis to photograph your movie that already places it above anything like TV is doing now or can do. Because as we've said, TV costs a certain amount of money. You do not get $20 million per hour On Mm -hmm. television. So if you look at a forty million dollar two hour movie, Mm -hmm. you're going to get a different visual Mm -hmm. patina. Mm -hmm. So again, getting back to that whole notion of T V versus movies, T V versus movies, that is really my key argument. The idea that you just don't have the Mm -hmm. financial resources Mm -hmm. to make that. But you were I was interrupting something you were saying about this
2: I was gonna say also when you think about all the president's men, like as you're saying it, I think what's so Great about that movie Or Makes it so much more Suspenseful It's like You also know What's gonna happen Like you know how that's going to end. You know, you know what... The truth we, is you there as, the like a, as like a weird haunting thing that just hovers over mm-hmm. the movie. And it's interesting because it like sandwiches it. Like, you, you sort of... The world knows the ending. You just don't know how people got to it. But it's a cool thing to have. It, it, it makes it more claustrophobic in a way. Like, you know they're going to slam against something at a certain point.
1: And also, it doesn't really stress the likability or the relatability of its two main protagonists, Woodward and Bernstein. Thank <laughs> Some might have argued in a very minor key way that, oh, you're casting two movie stars, handsome Robert Redford, who really doesn't look anything like the character he's Mm -hmm. playing, or Dustin Hoffman. And that in its own way is a kind of way to make them a little bit more likable. But they're not given any kind of outsized personality trait, so we have to identify with them. They're just two guys kind of doing something and trying to figure this mystery out. Mm
2: -hmm. When your outline is, Uh, well, I'm just, you know, starting to write and learning and but i'm you know i love reading interviews with writers and i love you know or just musicians about the creative process but you know when you're making something like music or writing there is a moment if it's going well where it just sort of starts to happen and you lose track of whatever that is do you feel that uh, because i know that you like to outline that that can be just as creatively exi- do you get into an out like a zone as if you were writing a book or a show or like kind of a heightened place even in the outline stage no, in but a way? it
1: happens all the time yeah. I mean that's part of why you do it in a way yeah. I mean that sounds like a little bit like an addiction but yeah no. that's that's completely what happens and that's what should happen I mean the times where I'm working on something and I am also doing a crossword puzzle also watching CNN, also getting up from my desk every three or four minutes, obviously it's not going well at that point. Right. Obviously, when I'm immersed in something and then I realize 45 minutes have passed, mm-hmm. that's the real pleasure. Yeah. But also, it is true that each thing is different in a way in terms of a novel, a screenplay, an essay.
3: Yeah.
1: There is, I notice, a different mindset needed for each one. Like with a novel, I am not so locked into the format. The screenplay has a format. Mm -hmm. You don't really want uh, 10 pages of dialogue. Mm -hmm. Very hard for any writer to kind of sustain that. Maybe Quentin Tarantino can Mm -hmm. sometimes. Very difficult thing to do. A very difficult thing to want to watch Mm -hmm, anyway. mm -hmm. So you are aware of the kind of limitation, in a way, of the form of the screenplay. But also, I think you can find something freeing in that. Mm -hmm. I know it has to end here. I know I've got to start doing this here. You don't need to follow the Sitfield beats, Mm -hmm. but you kind of write the movie, hopefully, that you want to see. That's really what you can do. That's what you can do. With the novel, it is more immersive because there are really no rules for a novel. It can be anything you want. You can suddenly start stop in the middle of a paragraph. You can become very digressive. You could go into flashbacks, dream sequences, if you're so inclined. I think those things don't work as much in movies as mm-hmm. much as they might, uh, might mm-hmm. in fiction. And then, of course, you know, an essay is usually something that you want to get off your chest. It's something that you're passionate mm-hmm. about. And so that requires a different kind of skill set mm-hmm. at the same time. So, look, you all kind of end up in the same place where you're kind of transported Mm-hmm out of the room because you're lost in this dream you're creating you know and that is one of the reasons you do it Brady Cinell is here for TrueCar. People everywhere, no matter where they are, use their mobile phones. So it makes sense a company like TrueCar would come along and create a mobile app that makes buying a new car simple and fun. You just download the True Car app, configure the car you want, and you can see what others actually paid for the same car down to your zip code. Then, you can lock in guaranteed savings from True Car certified dealers in your area. On average, over three grand off MSRP. Save time, save money, and never overpay. Download the True Car app today.